0: Hi, this is Stavros Yanuka, welcoming you back for a brand new season of Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. This episode is the first in a series of six that will explore post-pandemic priorities for education around the world. This season, we're also introducing a new feature, which we hope you will find interesting. At the end of each conversation, I will be joined by Andrew Jack global education editor at the Financial Times, to reflect on the discussion and to give us a preview into some of the other education issues that he is looking into. Now, before I introduce this episode, let me say a word about why, when the world is still very much in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, WISE is this choosing to focus on post-pandemic priorities. Well, for a start, we spent most of 2020 doing an in-depth exploration of education responses to the pandemic, both through this podcast and our Education Disrupted, Education Reimagined series of convenings and the ebook that came out of those conversations. Now, all of that can be found on our website at wwwwise org. So we feel that we've covered... This ground well, uh, even though we're still keeping an eye on on what's happening around the world and still learning from it. We're also optimistic that with the rollout of effective vaccines beginning to take place around the world, that we're going to see the end of this pandemic in the not too distant future. And now is precisely the time to start thinking about planning for what comes next. And there are a couple of questions that are top of mind for us at Wise. The first set of questions revolves around how well we understand. The scale of the post pandemic challenge, both in terms of learning loss, but also in terms of issues to do with mental health and well being, as well as the loss of the socializing functions of education. And as a follow up to this, how well are policymakers and education leaders around the world preparing to address these challenges? The second set of questions revolves around the extent to which policymakers and education leaders are seizing the opportunity offered by this crisis to engage in meaningful, and impactful changes to our education system. There was, and still is, a lot of talk about the need to build back better. What does that look like in practice? And are we really building back better, or simply trying to go back to business as usual? With that, let me now introduce the first part of our new series, Post-Pandemic Priorities for Education. Given the recent transition to the Biden-Harris administration, we thought that the United States would be a good place to start this exploration. And joining us to do that is Rebecca Winthrop, good friend of WISE and a senior fellow and co-director of the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. Rebecca's research interests focus on the skills young people need to thrive as individuals, professionals, and as constructive citizens. She advises governments, international institutions, foundations, civil society organizations, and corporations on education issues. Rebecca has written widely, uh, and her most recent book is titled Leapfrogging Inequality, Remaking Education to Help Young People Thrive, uh, which she co-authored with Adam Barton and Eileen McGivney. Her work has been featured in the BBC, Newsweek, Time Ideas, NPR, Economist, and the Financial Times. During our conversation, we discussed Brookings Task Force and recently released report on next-generation community schools, the scale of the learning loss in the U.S., the extent to which the aspiration to build back better is actually materializing, or whether we're simply looking to revert to business as usual, how to engage parents and students with the process of change, how to lighten the bureaucratic load on schools, and many other topics. With that, please join me in conversation with Rebecca Winthrop. Uh, Rebecca, welcome back to Wise Words.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Maybe a good place for us to start is is really just for you to recount what's been keeping you busy in this past very very unusual year that we've all been through, and instead, in, in, indeed, we're still you know, twenty twenty one has seems to have picked up exactly where twenty twenty yeah. left off. And so, what's you know, what's been keeping you uh, busy this past year?
1: Well, uh, I think like everybody, uh, probably every single person, (laughs) almost every single person on the planet, you know, we started last year really having to think anew about what our work means and how we need to pivot. And for us, we, I'll, I'll speak personally and, and, and for our broader team, I mean, it really was beginning in January and February because we have non-resident, we have uh, team members, we have a very group, diverse group of team, team members from around 25 countries. We have team members in China. They, of course, were, you know, starting in the heart of the beast in December and January. And we have um, wonderful um, colleagues who, we're asking for help about how do you train teachers to. And you know, quickly in an emergency yeah. context um, to deliver online learning. So one of the first pivots we did was really do, and this is across the team, sort of scoop up learnings from how to do education in emergencies. I have happen to have a background in that. We have a number of other um team members who also have backgrounds in that, um, but also there's experts who aren't on the team. And so we did a, quite a bit of curation, sort of scooping up for individual behind-the-scenes advising, which is what Brookings teams do. All over um, not not just our center, but you know, across the board. It's a big chunk of what we do. Um, But also we we started um, putting it out publicly, you know, little chunks. Um, And we did right away sort of, you know, major lessons from past emergencies. What do people should expect? What should they think about, you know, as people are going into this? Right away, we started saying, you know, think months, not weeks, because at the very beginning, at least you know, post after the yeah. rest it was clear that the rest of the world was going to be affected. People were thinking schools going to be closed for a couple of weeks. And then from there, I have to say we've we've just pivoted in every, in every way.
0: Now I, I know at the beginning I I said that you know twenty you know twenty-one is sort of seamlessly blended with twenty twenty in terms of how the world looks but but in in fact there you know there have been some very significant developments and 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 hopeful developments uh, at that, not least of which, of course, the development of effective vaccines and the rollout of vaccination programs around the world. So, as as we look forward to the post pandemic era, and that's really the the focus of this podcast series, we want to get your perspectives and the perspectives of of the Brookings Institution on you know what what's the scale of the challenge that that we're having, you know, that we've uh, we're going to, in a sense, inherit uh, as a consequence of COVID. And, and how, you know, should policymakers uh, and practitioners around the world be thinking about how to address that challenge? And I know that in the next few days, in fact, on the 25th of February, mm-hmm. your center, the Center for Universal Education, is actually hosting a webinar to launch a, a report that uh, a task force that you were part of uh, did on addressing education and equality uh, with next generation community schools mm-hmm. A blueprint for mayors, states, and the Biden-Harris administration. So I don't know if we can get a a sneak preview on uh, on this podcast, but it'd be great to to just get your thoughts on on those issues.
1: Yes, definitely. Well, I mean, I think the message for policymakers is you know three top lines. One, the scope of impact is vast and great and enlarging the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. So the impact on inequality is huge. And it it manifests itself in different ways in different countries, but everybody, uh, both, both, both people in civil society, like you and I, Stavros, but especially policymakers, have to have their eye on how do you help those who were least able and um, had least amount of resources before COVID, mm-hmm. and have weathered the pandemic uh, the worst. That is who we really need to focus on. Um, the second message I would have is um, one that's a bit more hopeful, um, and it really links into some of my personal uh, obsessions. <laughs> so you know, you you might you I know we've talked about the Starbucks, so you might not be surprised that I say this, but where are the possible good uh silver linings that could have come out of covid and and when yep. i say silver linings i don't mean to diminish at all the the scale of the tragedy. We just reached 500,000 deaths uh, from COVID in the United States, which is more than World War I, World War II, and all, I can't even remember, put together. So it's extreme. But what I mean about silver linings, particularly in education, is are there new innovations or new strategies, if you don't want to call them innovations, uh, that were born out of necessity that actually are Helpful to continue. Um, and this is where the task force comes in on next generation community schools, because the phenomenon that happened in almost every jurisdiction around the world that had to close their school doors, which was almost every everywhere, um, was that when school doors closed, You had all sorts of members of the community. And I don't just mean individuals. uh, Individuals, yes, parents and families all of a sudden became very, very engaged. Not that they necessarily wanted to, but they were forced to. And schools found new ways to engage parents and families, new ways to communicate. There's incredibly creative ways of getting parent input. Um, One of our uh, big initiatives at the moment is a family engagement and education network. And we have 30 partners around the world. One of them is Himachal Pradesh in India. And there, that state government has started electronic PTA meetings, regular correspondence with parents by SMS, rather than br- relying on bringing parents to the school, obviously, for their engagement. And they want to continue it because they've had 90 plus um, members of of fa- uh, parents in, in the state um, fully engaged with them, which was not the level it was before. So that's what I mean by silver linings. And- that goes for other other parts of the community, right? Health and social services, um, media companies really sort of stepping into the forcing. How, how can they help? Employers. So all of those assets in the community, it, once we get everybody vaccinated and we go back to a pre-COVID world, or perhaps we just adapt like it is the flu and live a, you know, live with COVID, but in a more normalized way, I think it would be really yep. a shame. If all that energy of those education allies in the community just faded away, and that really is one of the main messages of the uh, task force on next generation community schools.
0: And so, I mean, that that sort of begs the question: How do you take practices and and innovations that, as you put it, were born out of out of necessity, uh, and institutionalize them? I mean, what what are you advising? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, local authorities, because again, I think it's important to note that education, uh, of course, it's a sort of national and global priority, but usually delivery tends to be very, very localized. Mm-hmm. So so what's the advice that you're giving, you know, mayors and governors in mm-hmm. this case uh, about how they should think about institutionalizing uh, yeah. these practices?
1: Well, let me give you a little, let me answer that by giving you a little bit of a sneak peek, as you said, of the report we're launching on the, tomorrow. Um, That's right, 25th, yeah. Next Generation Community (laughs) Schools Task Force. So this is a task force that is focused on the United States, and it is focused on addressing education inequality um, and harnessing a, a community schools approach. Now, community schools have been in existence in the United States for a long time. And there's roughly 8,000 community schools in the country. There's about um 100,000 schools in the country so that's maybe 8%. Um but what we saw is that they fared incredibly well in the pandemic because they were all already had relationships with parents and families and they could um, really track and know the kids who uh, sort of disappeared and weren't, you know, able to log on. And 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 you know, there's a big problem of of students who you know aren't you know able to get remote learning. So they could quickly pivot because they had trusting relationships with families. They already had sort of this model in, uh, in the in the school governance approach of partnering with groups in the community, nonprofit organizations. Then there was a big focus there has been i should say a big focus in in the community schools movement if you want to call it that in the in the US on something called integrated services which really is that partnership bringing health bringing mental health bringing social work you know in into the school and making sure uh the kids who need it most are are getting those services that has been a big emphasis and the reason we're calling it next generation community schools is because the intention all along has been to make sure that community schools um, first and foremost, are schools that promote, you know, really robust, high-quality teaching and learning and yep. can use the community resources and assets to help children's well-being, yes, but also their learning and development. Um, and so that is really sort of the 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 push uh, of the report and there's lots of models of, of individual schools, some entire school districts who have taken that on. The Oakland School District before COVID is a com- uses the community school approach writ large and ma- massively to address inequality. There's big inequality in that district and that's been quite effective. And so we are really focused on um, distilling sort of the core elements of a community school. Which includes the teaching and learning piece, which I talked about. So people have a sense of what we yep. mean and then really focused on giving suggestions around how one might scale the approach. And again, for us, it's because this is a national task force, a big message is going to be around prioritizing those with the greatest unmet need. And indeed, we did a whole analysis and, and we, we talked uh, in the, in the report about unmet need um, being a combination mm-hmm. of deep educational needs not met prior to covid and higher than average covid deaths and impact from covid d- during the pandemic and you put those together and those are the communities that should be prioritized very it says you know quite a lot uh, about how the us is very unequal we found that if you focused on just 4% of school districts across the country and those are and those school districts by the way are scattered in almost every state and the nation, it's not just one part of the the country, but there's 4% of school districts, you could reach 40% of the kids uh, with un- this greatest unmet need. So a big message is going to be, you don't have to boil the ocean, yeah. you know, look at where it's needed Least and and then work with communities there to see if they want to take on the community schools approach and to and to make sure we invest um, you know money and time and attention in those areas.
0: Yeah, I was actually going, going to ask you you know if you could give us a sense of what the scale of the problem is. Um, so beyond the the four percent of districts that account for forty percent of the uh, of the need, roughly what's what's the scale of the problem? Both in terms of learning loss. And the sort of mm-hmm. number of students, roughly, that that have been affected.
1: I mean, that that's a <laughs> number of students that's been affected is probably everybody. Yeah. The issue is because almost almost every jurisdiction um, in the country has closed at some point or another. In my jur- school district, my kids haven't gone back to school yet. They they're still in remote schooling, and so it's yeah. been actually in a couple of weeks. It'll be one full year. They've been remote learning, which colleagues in other parts of the world are shocked to hear because they've opened up much more quickly. So I would say the the impact has been just incredibly widespread in the United States. Um, And that has a lot to do with our form of governance, perhaps, um, and sort of very localized control, which amid a cross-border pandemic, it's hard to, to, to efficiently tackle. But the real question which is what i think you're getting at is that the effects of of covid are are felt incredibly differently yeah and largely by Income, and we know that actually the um, black and brown communities in the United States, you know, are make up disproportionately larger percentages of low income communities, and therefore disproportionately affected by African Americans, Latinos, Native American communities, uh, and some commute some some kids. And I would say this is a small percentage of the elite few, but some kids have uh, fared great in the pandemic. They have individualized tutoring pods. Their parents might be stressed out, but the kids are kind of Mm -hmm. okay. And they are, you know, doing all sorts of, you know, cool things, advanced robotics, et cetera. So they are flying forward. Yeah. Um, and so certainly one of the things that teachers, school leaders around the country have to look um, for and f- prepare for and figure out what to do about um, as we are looking out to 2021 20, um, and more jurisdictions are opening up and kids are coming back, which is beginning to happen, is there's going to be a probably a much greater distribution uh, of kids who are really on top of um the content and you know at grade level, and kids who really aren't. So rather than a yeah. bit of a gap, the, the the gap is going to be much larger, and that's really hard for a teacher to handle.
0: And it, I, I saw some preliminary findings put out by some of your colleagues that also suggest that the the impact on reading, for example, has not been as dramatic as say the impact on on mathematics. Is that is that something that the task force is also you know looking, looking at a new are, are you recommending for example not just focusing on on sort of specific uh, jurisdictions of need but also focusing on specific areas in terms of of curriculum is that something that uh, you guys are looking into
1: no we didn't cover that explicitly in the task force because there are um examples as you say where reading has improved or or not it's not been the the loss of bad learning yeah. learning and yeah. instructional time hasn't hit it as bad but i would say that's very dependent on the on the on the kid and the family you know you really have to look at this distribution there are and the task force is really focused on uh, you know the purpose is around equity and addressing um, the needs of COVID and really that a community school approach broadly is a, a really helpful, good approach to meet this moment we're in. It is interesting to think, though, about how is it that some kids have done much better in reading? And it does let you open the mind a bit to think about what could be possible new ways of thinking about teaching and learning that sort of supplement out of school time approaches within school, classic instruction, etc. cetera.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, your, your colleagues were in, in the article were, were speculating, I think uh, uh, quite appropriately, that uh, one possible explanation is, you know, kids, you know, found more time to actually read for, right. uh, for leisure Right. Uh, and also reading is a sort of, it's an area where parents are, you know, find it easier to help than, right. than say, you know, mathematics. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. and, and so that's, you know, that's that's a possible uh, explanation. But just just on that, do you, you know, certainly at WISE, you know, we did a number of, you know, of convenings, digital convenings, you know, during the, uh, the pandemic in, in, in 2020, where, you know, we spoke a lot about you know, this is an opportunity to think anew. This is an opportunity to build back better. How much of that are you now seeing materialize, at least in the context uh-huh. of the US? It, is there really a rethink? Uh-huh. Or are we still uh, saying, look, we, we need to get back to where we were? And and so essentially what we're talking about is some form of remediation here uh-huh. that, that's that's going to you know, try and bring kids back to where they would have been. Mm -hmm. But for the pandemic, and we haven't really used this as an opportunity to, you know, to think anew the way we do to education.
1: Um, I was just having a discussion right before this with a colleague of mine named Michael golden who's at the University of pennsylvania and he said look and he's he was the person who sort of trained all the all the professors on how to how to do remote instruction in addition to his running his his program on education entrepreneurship out of the the school of education but he said look i'm not sure you know there's three options we after the pandemic we revert are we just gonna are all those uh, professors going to go back to um, the way they instructed before, we will evolve or we will leapfrog, you know, and our hope is we will leapfrog. That's, you know, this idea of really harnessing innovations to rapidly mm-hmm. accelerate and with a focus on closing the equity gap and a focus on exactly what you said, Stravos, and ensuring the kids actually get the full suite of competencies and skills that they need that they've always needed, not just out Mm -hmm. of the pandemic, which includes academic rigor and strong reading, but also includes some of these higher order thinking skills like, you know, critical thinking and collaborative problem solving, et cetera. So I don't know in reality where we're going to end, which path is going to have, we're going to take. I think that there is a very likely chance that we will revert when you asked me for at first, you know, what have you been working on? You know, we, at first we, you know, pivoted and it was just, you know, what, how can we be helpful? We're not implementers, but we're advisors, we're curator mm-hmm. of knowledge and, and, and we sit in the evidence to action uh, piece uh, and how can we be helpful in helping pe- people on the ground, pivot um, decision makers of every scope and type in and out of government. Um, and so, you know, I would say after a couple months, we quickly set our sights on the what do we have to do to leapfrog? Like, Mm -hmm. what what would it take? What could be positive? And, and, you know, we did last September a big piece on beyond reopening schools. Can education emerge stronger after COVID-19? And for us, we've really been trying to push the thinking because it's incredibly hard. I think, as you probably know well, any teacher, any school leader, any superintendent... I mean, they are stressed out, rightly so. There's so much thrown at them. How do you do remote learning? How do you get your teaching force vaccinated? How do you get your school set back up? I mean, it is a logistical, school itself, getting kids across the country, everybody, every day, uh, five days a week to come at the same time, go through stuff that's meaningful and leave at the same time is a logistical feat. And add on top of it, this layer of COVID. So people really have their heads down. And they yeah. are, they're just trying to survive, in my opinion. Um, and so I do think it behooves all of us who are not in the trenches to do what we can, which is why I was happy to do this uh, podcast, what we can to help put forward some vision of a path that could be evolve, or a, preferably leapfrog, but also evolve would be great too, but yeah. not, not revert. Um, and I think that The community schools task force, which really came out, at least um, for us on our end, came out of this beyond reopening uh, piece. Um, We were, um, uh, you know, various folks approached us afterwards who were co-chairing with and deserve a lot of the credit, um, including folks in New York City's um, mayor's office who who run um, community schools uh, in, in that jurisdiction. It was an effort to say, what could we feasibly concretely do? So rather than just giving little examples around the world and big directions of travel, what could something feasible, feasibly and concretely look like? And I do think in the U.S., for example, but I think a community schools approach, which does exist in various little pockets around the world, is a great approach, is is one, not the only, but one really good concrete way to, to tackle um, the problems that you talk about and to leapfrog. And it in the report, and and it was a big discussion uh, in the in the task force. We really say, you know, a next generation of community schools will is great to meet the moment to tackle inequality uh, because it's been proven. There's been great um, evaluative evidence from community schools model in the past, but it also lays the foundation for a whole new way of teaching and learning. Because if you think of the community as your mm-hmm. fabric for you know child development. And learning, you do all sorts of things. And we've seen community schools do that. It's not just about the um, physical and mental health, which are essential and actually foundational for learning, but it is also about, you know, partnering with the parks department on your science projects and kids who are learning about photosynthesis, you know, going out and actually working with um, plants and working with local community groups to, you know, think about um, urban planning when they come to discussing, you know, studying social studies. It's really about a new approach to doing school. And that is where I I see the silver lining in the hope because that we hope, um, but we're starting to see some take up an interest, uh, you know, on that idea um, and that cohering a bit, and that, and that's something we'll, we'll be leaning into.
0: Yeah, And no, I, I was gonna I was gonna ask you actually whether there's a sort of subliminal message in in the the report that that you know community schools you know can can serve really as a model to be emulated. You know, by by others in in the U.S. and indeed, you know, possibly uh, elsewhere. I think you've just, you know, you, you've just uh, you've just answered that that indeed, perhaps this is the way that schooling should be done mm-hmm. uh, permanently, not just as right. a, a sort of exactly. emergency response. Uh, and indeed, it's it's a topic that you know we're exploring at Wise under the uh, the, the, the sort of heading of of local uh, learning ecosystems where um, Valerie
1: Hannon's work, et cetera. Yes.
0: Yeah. Which we cite uh,
1: in the community (laughs) school task force report and your your wise book. Yeah.
0: So, so that's, uh, that's, that's good to hear that, that that is indeed, you know, where, where you're hoping to to sort of push the conversation. And I know uh, Rebecca, that, you know, leapfrogging is a sort of particular passion of yours and you've, you know, you've written a book uh, on that where you, you know, you looked at, uh, I think it was a few thousand examples
1: Mm-hmm. Three thousand,
0: almost three thousand. Almost three thousand examples from around the world, and we, you know, we've, we've had some questions coming in from, you know, from the audience, and one of them is around bringing students, parents, and indeed teachers on board with, you know, with change, and you know how how have you seen that play out? You know, obviously, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. So I think the you know the adaptations had to happen, you know, dur- during this past year, but how i guess the question would be how how does one sustain mm. that mm. you know going going forward and resist this tendency to just yeah. go go back to the way things used to be
1: it's a very very good question i think it's a, a live question and one we'll have to turn to more and more as 2021 progresses a couple of reflections one of the things that i think is important for us all to remember when we did our leapfrogging book leapfrogging inequality we we came to the conclusion um, that leaffrogging is possible because we saw it in small parts of the world so small you know schools uh, several hundred schools or a couple of places or small jurisdictions um and it was possible you didn't need to have a huge amount of uh, resources so in other words we didn't see this just in high income countries in wealthy jurisdictions we saw you know this these examples of what's possible in many many countries 160 countries um, and remote you know rural villages from you know to urban centers so we said yes it is possible but it's the the strategies that are being used are by and large with a few exceptions are on the margins of the, uh, of education systems. They were not really at the center of education systems. And part of the big, you know, sort of last, you know, lingering question for us was, you know, how are you going to think about scaling some of these approaches so that it does, you know, it really becomes, you know, a system transformation versus little, you know, approaches that sort of are, you know, pinging from the sides of a system. And one of the things that I think it's all really important for us to center and remember every day is that when push comes to shove education systems innovated and innovation is no longer on the margins and covid forced it which to me shows yeah. that it can be done it can yeah. be done and by the way the teachers were amazing uh i mean i think in a number of countries i'll take the uk but also chile lots of other examples and we put some of this in our beyond reopening piece the teachers when perhaps national uh, ministries were, oh, what do I do? Sort of rose to the fore, you know, just came yeah. up with all sorts of creative ideas. And uh, some of them banded together. Like in the UK, they, it was a teacher-led initiative to develop Oak School, which is an online school, which became the national approach to, <laughs> to remote learning. And I think we have to think about what enabled that type of creativity. It's, we don't, you know, COVID is a crisis. We don't want to necessarily go back to a total free for all with lack of direction. Like Mm -hmm. it's not like everywhere fared great, but what are the, again, this is the the silver lining. And I'm saying that just because I'm a sunny optimist, you know, Um, somebody told me not to use the silver lining language, which I can see because COVID is very, very problematic, but really, what are the pieces, the nuggets that we can learn from? So. How can we enable teachers to, you know, unleash their creativity? There was some great examples out of South Africa. South Africa, the Western uh, Cape Ministry of Education is our partner in our family engagement and education network for South Africa. And, you know, they have wonderful examples of teachers coming up with all Sorts of creative ideas amid COVID, where um, they, you know, there's a bunch, large section of communities, mm-hmm. especially in in um, communities, not much resources, where there's no remote learning option because families are not connected, they don't have the tech, and teachers are delivering homework packets to little tiny stores, community bodega type stores, and, and and families come and get get those homework packets for the week, and then the the jurisdiction, the government is training unemployed um, parents, family members, community members, just a tiny little bit to tutor the kids when they mm. show up in math and reading and it's helping. And so like the, the colleagues at the, who are our partners in this work would say, cause I asked like, what let the teachers be so creative? It's not like they weren't creative before, and all of a sudden they became creative. You know, you know, yeah. it's it's always been there. So it's really how do how do you tap into their creativity? And I think part of it was, you know, it just was less paperwork. Literally, small things, less paperwork to take yeah. a new idea and move it into translation because things were streamlined. So some of this stuff might not be rocket science, but it really is important. I think for us to do that hard research and examination and self-reflection of what are the pieces we want to keep and what enabled them and then um, try to, try to codify them and and move into a new way of delivering services.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, no, I, I absolutely hear that. And I think, I think part of it was also one, there was a need Mm -hmm. obviously to to innovate, but also a license to innovate.
1: It's
0: like in the absence of, of a predefined solution, you know, people rightly took it, you know, took the initiative and 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 developed their own own solutions. I I guess, you know, I think the challenge and, and I, you know, we we've talked about this before, the challenge is that when you get back to uh the, the physical schools, mm-hmm. you know, as you put it, it it's already a major operation. Yeah. You're running a public school system is a major operation.
1: Exactly. Unappreciated, I should say. I feel Un- like people take yeah. it for gr- for granted. I well, hope in COVID they realize, holy moly!
0: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 tough to teach. You know, you know, to to teach. You know, a couple of kids. You know, ne- never mind. You know, twenty or thirty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in in a classroom for you know six to seven hours a day. So no, absolutely. For what it's worth, my thoughts are that there needs to be some top down policy directive that says, look, we're, you know, we're gonna try and do some things differently. But then you also, as you, you know, as you uh your example illustrates, you need to unleash that latent creativity in in teachers and give them the space and the time uh, to do things things differently. So again, I don't know if that's you know featuring in your, you know, your conversations, but you know, but what what thoughts do you have about what you know the Biden Harris administration mm-hmm. for example can can do um you know to to begin this process bearing in mind of course that they don't have direct jurisdiction over yeah. over schools.
1: Biden Harris administration have um yet to confirm a secretary of the Department of Education, although they've nominated one. Um, and hopefully Congress will confirm him soon. Uh, and they, so we'll, we will see, but I would say if you look, um, at what they talked about being priorities on the campaign trail, right. They put out their positions. Um, one of the things that I think they've stated clearly, and this relates to what you're talking about, um, is helping really getting leaning in more on teacher, uh, ability to develop themselves. So they focus quite a bit on, you know, teacher mentoring. So uh, mm-hmm. teachers who develop the set of expertise and might might want to move on to perhaps mentoring new teachers. Um, so the sort of you know experienced versus less experienced mentorship, peer learning, teacher to teacher is, I think, a fantastic way um, to do some of what you just Said because it really puts sort of that learning in the hands of the people who know it best, who are those who are in the classroom. And we know that teachers trust other teachers more, almost more than any other source of information when it comes to their own learning and their own professional development. So this peer to peer approach to teacher development, I think is one, you know, leaning in on that and supporting that is one um, way that they can sort of foster teacher well-being, which in- includes their own professional development, their own career path, feeling like their voice is heard, um, feeling like they're good ideas. They have somewhere to go with it because it, you know, in any job, not just teaching in any job, if you feel like you have no path, and you do your best and your hardest every day, maybe for several years, and you're not really recognized, and you're, <laughs> there's no promotion, and and your really cool ideas don't have, uh, you know, a way to go, you know, an avenue, and um, it can be demoralizing. So the more we can do to sort of lift up teachers, broadly teachers' well-being, and that I think is a huge chunk of it. There's plenty of other aspects too, but...
0: Are there, are there any thoughts, you know, about... Reversing, maybe reversing isn't the right uh, right word, but you know what, you know, we talked earlier about paperwork, you know, yeah. and, and bureaucracy, and you know, one of one of the you know unintended consequences, you know, as far as I understand it, of the no child left behind policy was this explosion of testing, right? Yeah. And and you know, uh, you know, teachers having to and school systems having to administer just an inordinate number of of tests. Is there any you know, thinking about you know finding ways to to sort of trim that down, or or, yeah. or to, to sort of lighten that bureaucratic load <laughs> on schools.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, you are now diving into a hot topic um, that is debated at many many levels, and remembering that in the U.S., it's really the districts and the states who have the yeah. vast control. However. The No Child Left Behind Act was replaced by the Every Student Succeeds Act by Obama, but a, n- a number of pieces were kept. The um, impetus and sort of the motivation of No Child Left Behind, even the phrase No Child Left Behind, is was good. Absolutely, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah. It was yeah. good. The problem is that it, the execution and design had a lot of unintended consequences, and it had the effect of narrowing the focus of what education is all about. There's, you know, greater minds that meet than me that study Measure, you know, measure high account of high stakes measurement in social science, and basically say it gets intention always get. If there's a way for the intention to be perverted, if it's high stakes, it will be. Whether that's cheating on on you know cheating on the on the assessment so that your school wasn't closed down, or teachers give you know, or just only doing uh, teaching to so that you're teaching kids in in schools that have a lot of need, uh, so that they can pass these tests. So they're basically effectively doing tests prep for the whole year on two subjects reading and math and it's not that the people in the system were necessarily bad people it's just that it was poorly poorly designed the incentive structure every student succeeds act has broadened that a bit it isn't as sort of narrow but there is certainly a discussion and we mention it a bit in the mm-hmm. task force on community schools about thinking about you know formative assessment which I, it's not really a big focus but broader measures of student success, rather than just sort of strong academic competence on a couple of pieces. And frankly, if you look at the Common Core, the assessments are pretty Good. It's hard to do drill and kill for the common core assessments. You you do need to teach in a way that builds critical thinking. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, you still need to, do, I mean, but there's still assessments. They still take a lot of time and you still need to do a lot of stuff that kids with less, come from families with less resources or less exposure have a harder time with, which might be, you know, typing. A lot of these things are, mm. a lot of these tests are on the computer. Well, you have to get, if you, have, if you don't have a computer at home and you're not learning to type and you don't see parents typing, like it's kind of a foreign thing. So, you know, yeah. it's it's not perfect by any means, uh, but the, I'm, I'm diverging a bit, I think around your answer, but part of, I think um, I was saying was in our task force report, we mentioned this idea of, you know, broader measures of success, yeah. And so that is a conversation that I think is really important. That include things around student well being, include some of the social emotional competence. Um, Now, you know, really the devil is in the detail on how that gets rolled out, Mm. because we've seen high high accountability, high stakes testing, you know, can have many unintended consequences.
0: But you know, in in, in some ways, you know, the the uh, my own sort of ignorance of 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 the development of of uh, education policy in the U.S which you you know which you corrected rebecca also illustrates i think another you know fact of 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 the policy world that i i know that you are probably more familiar than i which is it seems very hard in the policy world to get rid of programs and <laughs> like once something is has been introduced it's kind of you know as as you say the you know the obama administration comes in and it doesn't really get rid of you know no child left behind it's sort of fine-tunes it, tweaks, you know, what why is it so hard for us to say, look, this was a, you know, this was a bad idea or this isn't working. Let's just, you know, drop it and and you know do, do something else.
1: Right. Well, I think that's a question writ large. Uh, not not just, not just around just the translation education. from not, no child yeah. left behind to yeah. every student succeeds, because you know there were core pieces of No Child Left Behind. Like we all, everybody wants kids to be able to um read and do math rigorously. Like that's essential. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the intention. So, you know, you don't want to great. throw the baby out with the bathwater. But yeah. writ large, I think your question applies to um the, you know, the act of, po- of policy making. Uh, one thing that I think stands true for, for most of it, and it might be a little bit the the corollary of what you're posing is, you know, it's a little bit like Michael Barber's deliverology. A sort of thesis, which is it's much easier, and it isn't easy at that. But it's much easier to sort of design and and legislate and pass a program than it is to actually implement it on the ground. And so much is spent thinking about how should we design it, etc., versus you know how do we implement it on the ground that I I do think that that lends itself. To tweaking things rather than whole scale throwing stuff out. But your que- i don't have a good answer to your question. Your question yeah. is a really profound one. It's a good one. Um, it's the—I also feel like it's a little bit of human nature, and some of the same reasons why, you know, curriculum boards around the world always add stuff.
2: They never, never take, take away. They but
1: never but take more. stuff away. <laughs> they might take a few little things. Um, you know, no, yeah. nobody's teaching my kids handwriting at the moment. It's no longer you know got taken out so now they now they have terrible fanmanship like so yeah. you know people will always complain about what gets taken out but not massively right
0: yeah no absolutely well you know be, before we wrap up the discussion rebecca what what are you what's on your agenda for you know for the coming months at uh, at the Center for Universal Education.
1: Yeah, for moving forward, one of the big, big initiatives that I'm going to be focusing quite a bit on is really looking at this question of parent and family engagement in education. Um, It's really uh, been at the heart of the question around COVID response. COVID also has revealed that education systems do it very very poorly <laughs> um that this is actually how you engage families how you engage um parents in their kids education actually has is a really important job of an education system, not just teachers but school leaders superintendents district jurisdiction leaders and ve- and there there's very little training very little um sort of inculcation of good practice in education systems it's, it's always been sort of a side niche topic now i think it's essential not you know not least because of this idea of how important families and communities are to an, a new way of doing school a la a community school approach or a, a local learning ecosystem or and you know we see that as a par, as a way to accelerate progress to tackle inequality in our leapfrog work so that's it's 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 really important for student outcomes and and, and there is um, ample evidence if you do it well, um, family engagement, which is really engaging parents and families around how kids are learning and what they can do at home and in their own lives to support kids learning. And less, much less about asking families to show up at the school for events. Um, If you do it well, it can have a really big um, boost. For, for kids, especially kids who are farthest behind. So there's a, a real rationale to pursue it, but I think there's a real opening window of opportunity to pursue it. And then I also think from my own perspective, looking at, you know, what would it take to get us to not just revert, but to leapfrog? I think public demand and parent sort of engagement and um, really trying to figure, you know, their sort of voice at the table on what they want for their kids um, is going to be an important, uh, move, I I think could be an important lever for really pushing um, education systems towards that leapfrog approach. Now, um, one of the things that I've learned is there's very very little uh, data or methods or strategies outside of just a satisfaction survey that's usually you know some uh, jurisdictions send to their parents: "Are you satisfied with your kid's school?" But very little um, sort of rigorous approaches to trying to understand well actually where if you're hoping parents are going to you know if you want to really partner with them work jointly together you have to kind of understand as a you know where are they starting where are they starting from what do they think is the most important purpose of school for their kids what are their motivations what are the feedback loops they're paying attention to what uh is their opinion and trust level of schools and teachers, et cetera. So those questions. So we're going to be really delving into those questions and and launching um, in the fall around September a playbook that you know it'll take our first pass on on answering those.
0: Well, I mean that that sounds um, that sounds terrific, and I think it's it's very much in line. I think with you know the the, the focus of of you know your center's work also on you know on, on community schools. And I know it's a, you know, it's a cliche, but it seems to me that you're, you're trying to put some, uh, you know, meat on the bones of, of uh, the expression, it takes a village, right? Right. Exactly. To to raise a a child, you know, what, what does that actually mean in practice and in the, in the context of, uh, of the 21st century? So we will certainly be, you know, keeping, keeping an eye out for that at WISE. And I hope, you know, I hope we can get you back to, to talk about that um, I would love that in in September. So, Rebecca, thanks again for your wise words.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: I'm now joined by Andrew Jack. Andrew is the Global Education Editor for the Financial Times. Andrew, welcome to Wise Words. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Andrew, what are what are some uh, thoughts that you have having sort of listened to the conversation with Rebecca?
3: Yeah, no, I think I think uh, the work that she and uh, Brookings has been doing both on the particular context of community schools and, and more generally around innovations in education is is really important and timely of course uh, you know for long periods all existing um, education systems around the world including uh, those in the US and the UK where I'm based and others definitely have kind of issues that need to be addressed big challenges about reskilling, thinking about the uh, the workforce and and life for the next generation as, mm-hmm. as society changes 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 rapidly, recognitions of huge inequalities and tensions, particularly for some of the more traditionally disadvantaged groups and how to gain access to them. And I think the Community Schools Initiative, I mean, obviously in its American context it has a very specific sort of definition and legal and governance framework but I think certainly the messages underlying the idea of kind of engaging the community much more widely are incredibly important linking up with parents but also wider community and civic groups um, trying to engage the community, sort of open it out to its uh, local environment rather than close it off is really fundamentally important and of course we've seen that during coronavirus where um, particularly perhaps in uh, lower income countries as well as the richer ones a lot of the factors about how students engage with school and how able they are to learn are so integrated into this wider complex set of challenges for society overall. all of course you know will in a lot of lower income countries girls even return to school? Is there a risk of earlier marriage or dropout or requirement for families struggling to ends meet to put them into work of some form? Issues of social care and support and outreach to parents to talk about the value of education for their children to get ahead in life. And then issues around welfare, including school feeding programmes, which in many parts of the UK let alone in Africa and Asia, are really fundamentally important. School may be the current core place where children get support that isn't available in fragmented families and and low-income contexts. So all of that sense of outreach, I think, is is really important. Now, we have to be a little bit... um, cautious perhaps about talking about models or templates of approaches, Mm -hmm. community schools, for example, as a sort of a a magic solution, because clearly, you know, each place will be different. And I think, um, you know, as we've seen, for example, around charter schools in the US or uh, free schools in the UK and elsewhere, you know, sometimes it can be a bit dangerous to lump all approaches together into a single sort of magic solution. But I certainly think a lot of the underlying trends that uh, Mm. community schools in the US context are discussing are really important ones to explore more widely.
0: Yeah. and And I think, I mean, I think the broad principle of looking for ways to engage the wider community in providing formal and informal education opportunities uh, and other ancillary services, I think that's that's something that's certainly worth exploring, regardless almost of, of context.
3: Yeah, and I think it's certainly the you know this this I mean of course there's been many challenges and downsides to kind of remote learning and we know of course apart from the the primary people on the front line the children themselves it's put huge pressures of course on parents carers families in trying to support their children from home as well as of course trying to balance that with continuing to to earn Mm. and and exist more generally and the stresses that families and adults are having but I think you know at least that's thrown a spotlight perhaps and brought an increased realization of the importance and the social state and the value of teachers you know many more people have seen a bit more from the inside how difficult a role that is so perhaps if that raises the status of teachers and the need for more focus and resourcing higher up the list of priorities in society and in politics then that's at least been a, a sort of a benefit of sorts.
0: Mm. No I, I mean I couldn't I couldn't agree more and you know I, I hope it, it this appreciation you know sort of survives more than than one or two years, sort of post uh, post pandemic, what what are your thoughts, Andrew? I mean, what what are you observing from your your sort of global vantage point around this question of that, that we addressed briefly with with Rebecca about whether you know as as we look forward to the end of the pandemic, you know, are schools and school systems going to revert? to type to a certain extent, or have we taken this opportunity to sort of engage in a a bit more of a fundamental rethink around education? What, what's what's your sense?
3: Yeah, I mean, first of all, and I'd say this more generally about the pandemic, um, of course, societies do trend, tend to forget over time. So there's a lot of kind of pledges of goodwill. And, you know, this will change everything, whether in a negative or a positive way. Um, I suspect over time, you know, things will morph. Um, but it's hard to imagine either things going back completely to how they were before, or indeed there being a kind of complete upending. I -hmm. think the the reality is, and in the context of schooling, we're certainly going to see some evolutions. I mean, in many ways, the pandemic has sort of shone a spotlight on the limitations, the frustrations, the difficulties that have long been there, to some degree, of course, then accentuated kind of, you know, a sobering reminder of the digital divide, and more generally, the issues of disadvantaged groups and how they have long been left behind in Mm -hmm. school systems. So, I think going forwards... As I said, I'm hoping certainly there'll be a greater focus and realisation of the of the challenge and the importance of education, not only in core areas of learning, but thinking about the wider social functions that are often sort of by default get pushed onto teachers as sort of, you know, proxy social workers and, mm-hmm. and wider supporters. I think obviously the wider context of the pandemic, but including how it's affected children, is some of those wider questions of well-being and mental health, um, and a lot of teachers I talk to are certainly talking about how that needs to be more widely discussed and engaged with and solutions found. But then, of course, uh, you know things will not go back to normal quickly for all sorts of reasons, not least, of course, coronavirus continues to circulate. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we're not going to get to um, zero uh, COVID-19. The, the virus will continue to mutate, coronavirus, as we know, in, in mild forms of common cold circulate every year. On the one hand, I think we need to start to reprioritize and get used to living with this virus, which hopefully will be in a much more mild form, many significant advances in terms of, of treatment, in terms of prevention and so on. Um, I hope we can sort of move back to an area where there's much less, as it were, clinical public health interventions that are visible, social distancing, face masks yeah. and so on, because what's been hugely missing, of course, is that personal contact, the physical contact, the face-to-face experience in in the classroom. But I think, you know, as it were, on the downside, There's no doubt that there is going to be a huge generational effect. So, by whatever means, with however much resource, and whether it's with technology or through just an intensified level of face to face contact and re engagement in schools, this is a multi year issue that Mm -hmm. we're going to have to deal with in terms of learning loss, in terms of trauma, of dropout, and also perhaps on the positive side of, of understanding new potential ways to engage and prioritize. I mean, again, in my own country, in the UK, I think, you know, in some ways education reform has gone in the wrong direction in the past few years in terms of really focusing on heavy fact and knowledge-based curricula, very tightly defined subject areas, a real focus on high-stakes assessment. Mm -hmm. And I think if we could start to move towards both pragmatically and for long-term reasons of, of kind of coherence and value, we'll start to move towards lower stakes, more regular testing that allows integration, which is more motivating rather than stigmatizing, that helps steer teachers to be able to more personalize and direct and support learning for every child going forwards. Yeah, know and
0: it's, it's interesting that you you know you bring up the 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 generational challenge and the uh and in a sense the the necessary multi-year effort to, to in a sense regain what has been lost. And I know there's some debate in the UK now around uh, ex, you know, possibly extending uh, the academic year, or or you know, adding adding remedial uh, opportunities. What what's uh, what's happening there, and what are your thoughts?
3: Well, it, first of all, there's the as it were the relatively short term, and clearly, mm-hmm. if only because of the huge gaps in learning. Uh, there's been a shift, therefore, away from our classic high-stakes exams at 15-16 uh, and, and at 17-18 uh, A-levels for university entry. There's a lot of talk about paring down the curriculum, but also testing that will actually empower teachers themselves as the real experts, of course, on the learning and the improvements of their children. So, they will take a greater responsibility in the grading and marking. There are medium-term discussions around that as well, that could be quite structurally important, including whether, for example, at the moment, universities normally make conditional offers based on exam results that are yet to happen. And there's some argument one should shift that timetable. So applications are done when whatever exams and other formal application criteria have been completed, that would massively reduce the levels of uncertainty and allow for a more efficient way to perhaps Match up um, student capacities with with needs for further and continuing education of different sorts, so there's that when it comes to the school timetable, yes, certainly again in the short term, there's a lot of talk at the moment about whether it's extending the school day, some weekends, and over the summer, for example, whether there should be more catch up opportunities and summer mm-hmm. learning. Of course, historically, a lot of that again has tended to benefit those who are better off presented real challenges for children from lower income backgrounds to have the capacity and the resource to Uh, get involved with it to some degree questions around stigma as well but I think we'll see that in the short term and I think there's a real need to experiment more with perhaps at least reallocating time Mm -hmm. during the school year and thinking about how it's structured you know whether you need more formalized time in the existing school timetables for example around remediation so it Mm -hmm. becomes less a sort of stigmatized thing you do to catch up after school that stands you apart from your peers and more you know remediation of different sorts or, or curricular support is something that almost everybody would benefit from so let's mm. find time in the school timetable during the regular periods when yeah. different kids will go into relevant uh, support complementary additional programs then of course there's the issue about the staffing around all of this and and in Many countries around the world, Australia, the Netherlands, the US, the UK, uh, lower income settings in many places as well, India and elsewhere, a lot of talk about tutoring, because clearly, um, yeah. more small group, more personalized support that's really targeted to the needs of students is is a huge issue. Um, I think that seems to be one of the real areas of priority where there's strong evidence it can deliver. Much more difficult to do remotely. And, of course, big challenges just given the unprecedented scale of learning loss about where you find suitably qualified and motivated teachers, how you structure those support lessons, how far you need to align what happens in tutoring Mm -hmm. with uh, the real gaps and with kind of wider areas of of the curriculum and the school uh, program. So lots of unanswered questions, but I think a real momentum to think about what would require essentially a resourcing up of, if you like, face-to-face, ideally teaching intensity with students to to really focus on their needs. And, And
0: where are we? I mean, you know, there's a lot, I mean, you've emphasized, you know, the need for uh, for face to face for, for a lot of these, um, interventions, where, where are we on, uh, on, on the reopening of, uh, of schools in large parts of the world, the industrialized world, at least.
3: Well, as we know, it's it's a hugely mixed picture. Um, I mean, interestingly, there's been some, first of all, the data, of course, as we know, is far from perfect. And a lot of the kind of attempts to aggregate it have to be based on sort of public statements. It's quite difficult to really get into detail. There's a lot of nuance. I mean, a lot of school systems, um, even when they were closed physically to the vast majority. They tried to keep open for those from particularly disadvantaged families or those whose parents were key workers in health, for example. There were many school systems which have been partly open physically. And of course, the vast majority have been open through online or through outreach efforts or teachers moving out into the community in parts of Africa, for example. And then, of course, the differential impact. Well, First of all, we have really very little data to To quantify the extent of learning loss. But um, interestingly, perhaps in terms of physical days missed, um, the US is very high up the list. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got other countries, Burundi at the extreme end that that never closed. And there are some other school systems as well that have limited their closures, um, at least nominally. That raises questions, of course, about you know the relative benefits of in school and out of school and what different school systems are delivering yeah. and also if you if you look at it not simply in terms of absolute days out of physical school but actually percentage of Total schooling time, you know, particularly in lower-income countries, where the amount of schooling may be over a much shorter period—only a, you know, a finite number of, of five or six or seven years—compared to much longer periods. So the overall level of mm-hmm. learning loss and the possibilities for catch-up are much lower. So the picture is very mixed. And then, for example, while the UK, for example, has had a fairly standardised approach of large-scale closures, they're now planning to reopen from early March. In the US, for instance, there's a very fragmented picture where almost each individual school and school district has their own policies based on all sorts of different yeah. um, drivers, partly science, partly politics and the ideology, if you like. So we can't come up with any single aggregated picture. But I mean, clearly, as we move into in some parts of the world are third phase of the epidemic but in many countries a sense particularly with better treatment routes with vaccination now rolling out gradually uh, on a larger scale and also I think the continuing debate and recognition about the trade-offs both um, the the learning loss the mental health loss for children being out of school but also the challenge that presents for parents to return to work mean that those combinations of factors I think is increasingly pushing for larger scale physical return in the coming weeks and months. And and there's some evidence, I don't know if you
0: you picked this up, but Brookings did some work looking at data from uh, the end of 2020, the fall of 2020, showing that learning loss, at least in, in reading, doesn't seem to have been as bad as expected. The case quite different from mathematics, for example. So there may also be a a a, a discipline academic discipline cut to identifying you know learning loss Uh, meaning it's not it's not across the board um, across all subjects
3: yeah, I think it's a very mixed picture. I mean, first of all, by age groups, you know, there are some studies that yep. suggest younger children have tended to be more differentially negatively affected, mm-hmm. in part because it's, of course, much more challenging at a younger age to be engaging remotely, to have the self-discipline, to to have the tech um, and the attention span to work in that way. Uh, on the other yeah. hand, I was just talking to a teacher today in the UK who was saying you know you could imagine the if only the sort of well first of all kind of the the older they get the closer they are to kind of final exams which clearly have a real influence on the successful transition to further education or to work Um, but also they're closer to the um, to that reality and that adds to the mental stresses of you know what's the future do I have if we're moving into Mm -hmm. a period of huge uncertainty disruption unemployment and so on so different ages, different impacts, but um, across the board, I think a significant setback. It's very difficult. You know, it's still quite early. There aren't many benchmarks. Of course, there are no benchmarks historically for anything as universal as this extent of learning loss across all groups and mm-hmm. countries and cultures. But the, some of the studies I've seen, for example, out of the Netherlands, which has a more perhaps comprehensive attempt to to test and therefore be able to track progress, suggests um, pretty significant learning loss in numeracy and literacy um, mm. and an implication that actually in other systems it may be worse because it's a relatively small and well-resourced country with quite a lot of focus given to um, tackling mm. inequality and disadvantage. So yes, I mean, of course, in terms of facts and knowledge, um, there will be gaps, the kind of the underlying skill sets and the core things, the building blocks on which to then expand for next stage study. I think that will be a, a huge challenge. And clearly, if there areas where there are conceptual difficulties where parents themselves might struggle with certain of the science or math concepts for example you know arguably that might be a greater challenge than catching up in in literacy and reading but you know you're hearing that as well yeah. even from young ages how far children have, have fallen behind in really basic understanding reading oral skills and so on
0: so it's i mean it's a it's a somewhat uh, discouraging picture i mean complex nuanced, but ultimately discouraging in, in the sense that, uh, you know, there's a lot of work that will need to be done uh, in a sense to, to sort of pull this generation back. Do you sense that there's, one, an appreciation amongst policymakers that this is going to be a, a long-term challenge? And two, is there an, a real appetite to put the resources necessary behind uh, fixing this?
3: Well, I think there's certainly a, a, a clear sense of understanding of the of the scale of the problem. Of course, you know, very few people in society, or let's say voters specifically in society, let alone politicians themselves, aren't directly affected, you know, whether they have children in education at some stage or um, themselves or their spouses or close family who are involved in schools as teachers and governors and so on. So, I mean, everyone's affected and there's no doubt that as some of these issues have come to the fore, it has forced governments already to make some quite radical moves around changes to exams around funding for support and so on. But of course, for the moment, that has been relatively short term. Many would say it's still not at the scale that's required, even for uh, the coming months of of adjustment and recovery, let alone the longer term. And of course, there are objectively huge other priorities and and demands on policymakers' priorities at the moment. How on earth do you prioritise between health, social care, education, economic um, expansion? and regrowth, all of these things are, are vying alongside. And of course, one of the underlying and long-standing challenges in education is, frankly, the sector has not been very good at making if you like, the investment case, the short-term capacity to demonstrate results. So if you're a, a finance minister in a lower-income country with huge other challenges ahead of you and you know your education colleagues or the wider community is coming and saying spend more on teachers, but you might not see a result for a generation, you might you know, be afraid that money will not provide a really tangible result and you can see metrics, indicators, potential responses. in other areas of course there'll be a temptation to switch to those and that's that's partly a critique of wider society and how it values teaching and education but I think bluntly it is also a challenge that the education sector itself needs to rise to in terms of measurement assessment making the the shorter the the shorter term case for value and results an impact that'll be required because the reality is uh, you know in the wider world I think we are going to be facing time of huge austerity and, you know, it's not a question of adding another 20% to real budgets. It's a question of taking a hit and really deciding where to prioritise in terms of what to reallocate and what to ring fence uh, going forward in education as in so many other spaces. Um, Andrew, we sort of be- began your in- intervention by, you know, t- talking about the
0: need for schools and indeed education systems to engage the broader community in supporting and creating uh, learning opportunities. Before we sort of close our discussion, I, I I thought maybe you could say something about, you know, what role media and indeed the sort of broader maybe corporate sector can play and, and also tell us a little bit about what the FT is doing uh, to support education.
3: Well, first of all, I think it's really important that, and including within school as well as sort of wider enrichment outside school, that the next generation engages with society more widely. So it needs to understand and have interactions with the world of work with employers, whether public or private, with other sorts of organisations and civic society. And at the same time, they need to engage with current affairs and high quality news. Uh, It's really important for their own enrichment, for understanding how to apply their studies in practical circumstances to relate what they're doing in the classroom to the world beyond um, we've seen the the dangers of fake news. I think hopefully that's also allowed people to understand increasingly that there is a value to high-quality journalism, amongst other things. And the more students and teachers and schools engage with the world of current affairs and with high-quality media, the better for, for for the future of society and democracy as well as for their own studies and progress. In life, so as part of that, the FT already three years ago, which normally has a paywall and requires subscription, offered its content for free to um, students in education age 16 to 19 around the world online, as well as their teachers and their schools. So that's some. Um, been running for three years now, it's got into several thousand schools around the world. And we really encourage people and welcome them to school leaders to to sign up for it, ft.com slash schools are free, a very simple web link um, that you could share. Uh, And it's been great to see not just in the UK or the US, but in, in India, in China, in other parts of the world, how students have been engaging. So we encourage them to read as widely as they want and follow their interests in terms of of tea content which is not of course just about finance and business and economics but about policy about foreign affairs about social and cultural issues around the world we arrange a series of competitions and blogs we just had one that closed with the world bank about learning precisely and how students themselves think their peers could most usefully engage and learn and catch up and we run a range of other events and ways to try to get students engaged with our content and it's been great to see they have responded and, and in terms of the feedback I've seen and the articles they're reading, you know, it covers the gamut from sustainability and climate change through mental health, as well as to more um, core issues of global trade and politics and science and so on. So it's a really exciting initiative to be involved with. And I and I do hope that people engage with us and with the media more generally in their learning.
0: Well, as, as a, a longtime subscriber to the uh, and reader of the FT, I can certainly thoroughly uh, recommend it. Andrew, thank you for
3: joining us on uh, on Wise Words. Thanks very much. A great pleasure and look forward to uh, speaking again.
2: This is Basim Hijazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. What did you think of this episode we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and you can reach out to us to share that anytime on our social media channels which you can find in the description and of course if you're new to the show please do consider subscribing for more episodes just like this one as stavros mentioned in the intro This season we're going to be taking a look at some of the world's post-pandemic priorities for the future of education. So stay tuned for more on that as we kick off our next episode with a focus on India with CEO of the Pratham Education Foundation, Rukmini Banerjee. Keep an eye on our social media channels to be informed when we go live next time to share your questions and comments directly with us. And finally, if you're listening on an iPhone or Mac, consider leaving us a review on Apple or iTunes, as that really helps out the show. Once again, thank you for tuning in today and hope to see you again next time on Wise Words.
0: Rebecca, thanks again for your wise words. (laughs) Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hey, okay. So that's all right. right. That's all right. Okay.
1: Thank you. <laughs> hey. That was fun.
0: Thank you. I, I hope I hope that was uh, enjoyable. And yeah i i seem to be I seem to be stuck on uh, on the Bush administration. <laughs> <laughs>